Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer, including all of the great sister podcasts there. There's truly something for everyone at Dicetower.com. The Long View is also proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Uh, Game Surplus has been my sponsor for over two years now. Uh, their customer service is fantastic. Their selection is wonderful. They specialize in hard-to-find imports. If you're looking for a game, just drop them a line. They'll track it down for you and get it shipped off to you super fast. So Gamesurplus.com is a growing resource for the board gaming community. Uh, they have just a wonderful selection of import games coming in every week. Uh, plus, they're expanding their line of GMT games, uh, all of the great war games, and uh, uh, games like the Coin Series, Fire in the Lake, they have that in stock. They have Thunder Alley. Uh, they have uh, When Eagles Fight. Um, they're just continuing to grow their brand. So go check out everything that Gamesurplus.com has to offer. And if you decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I also like to give a shout out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They are a wonderful resource for people in northeastern Pennsylvania. They have over 700 titles now in stock at the game store. Huge amount of open table space, knowledgeable staff, um, always ready to answer any questions that you have. Lots of demo games available. Um, Lloyd and I are there every Monday night checking out a new game. So if you're in the area, stop by The Gamer's Edge. Conveniently located on Main Street in Stroudsburg, right off of Interstate 80. So if you're in the northeastern Pennsylvania, northern New Jersey, or southern New York region, stop on by and check them out. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and I'm pleased to be joined once again by Joel Eddy. Uh, Eka Mouse on Board Game Geek of Drive Through Reviews uh, has agreed to join me for a special episode here on The Long View. So, Joel, I want to first say uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show again, and uh, welcome. Jeff, as always, it is my pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, this is a, an interesting show. This is, uh, you know, an episode that I, I wasn't really planning on doing. Um, I had a couple things that kind of blipped across my radar, and as usual, uh, just in, in chatting with you in passing, uh, you know, kind of found that you, maybe some things had been blipping on your radar as well, and before I knew it, we had talked for a good 20 minutes uh, about this topic of difficult themes in games, and, uh, you know, we kind of decided uh, that we'd like to record this as a full episode and kind of share our thoughts and our perspectives about this, and, you know, also try and kind of start a dialogue, get some conversation started, and so uh, in the spirit of that, um, I want to start this episode with a disclaimer. So... Joel and I are going to be uh, kind of talking about some games tonight. Um, the games that we're going to be talking about have difficult thematic components to them. Um, those thematic elements might include things like slavery or overt um, kind of sexuality uh, or uh, even the sex trade. Um, we are going to be dealing with some themes that um, might be a, a little bit more serious. And so for once, um, as a long view episode, I'm going to say this episode might be better for adults. Um, so kind of keep that in mind as well. Um, we're not going to be flying off the handle and uh, uh, shouting out all kinds of rude things, but we are going to be dealing with some serious themes. And uh, as a, a father of, of some kids, and, and I know Joel uh, as well, you know, we always like to let people know up front uh, what we're going to be talking about. So this is going to be a little bit different of an episode. Um, I also want to make it really clear that I am not the arbiter of morality. 
Um, I'm not trying to present myself as a person who is a final authority on what is good or what is bad in games. Um, but I, I've made some observations recently. Uh, there's some sort of patterns that I've spotted, some things that I want to kind of get out there and talk about. And I was really grateful uh, that Joel was willing to do that with me. So that's kind of my preamble to this episode. And, and Joel, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of say anything, you know, as a more high-profile person than me, um, to kind of say whatever you might like to say before we kind of dive into this topic. No, I think you covered it. That's That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so... I'll tell you um, real briefly, uh, for those out there listening, what prompted this um, episode for me was three different games. Um, and, and those three games, really briefly, were Greed by Donald X. Vaccarino uh, from Queen Games uh, that has just been released uh, as of Gen Con, I think. Maybe a little bit before Gen Con for Kickstarter backers. This is a deck-building kind of a game that uses a Seven Wonders-style draft and uh, it has a, an interesting little twist to it where you kind of always have a hand of three cards that you're going to have when you make your selection for the card that you're going to play that round. So you're going to have two in hand, you're going to get past a deck, you're going to pick a third, and then you're going to pick one out of those three that you're going to play. So unlike Seven Wonders, where you're constantly being passed a whole new hand, you have some cards you can kind of hold and reserve. And so this opens up some really interesting options you know something that's a little bit different than seven wonders and i really enjoyed the game uh the theme is kind of set in like a 1970s i kind of almost put it like a starsky and hutch for those of us who remember the original series um kind of world and uh there's interestingly no sort of references overtly to kind of drug culture but there's a lot of alcohol uh, mentioned in the game, um, you know, a lot of kind of speakeasies and uh, pubs and bars and taverns and, and things of that nature. And then there's also a lot of cards that reference, um, you know, prostitution. So we have like the Streetwalker card and we have the Burlesque Club and all of these different kinds of things. And so I played the game, really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was very clever, um, but I was a little bit kind of like, huh, you know, like I, I wonder why... Uh, Donald decided to go with this theme. I, you know, I, I, you could have kind of done anything differently, and um, you could have also kind of kept some of those elements in there if it wasn't just so in your face. And I remember thinking to myself as I was playing it, this is a lot of fun, but I'm not ready to play this with my 10-year-old son. I really, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's like I, I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want to try to explain what a streetwalker is. And so I still own the game. I like the game. I'll pull it out with adults anytime. I don't have any sort of necessarily like a moral problem with it. For me, it was more of like a head scratcher as to like, boy, you know, kind of cutting out a portion of your market here. You know, this definitely does not make this a family game um, because of that theme. Now, I'm not speaking for all families, but for my family, it's not a family game. Um, so that was kind of the first game. The second game that caught my eye was an Artipia release that is up and coming, and that, that game is called Lap Dance. And so this game is all about um, basically uh, strip clubs. And it's about running a strip club. 
It's about having clients and trying to meet those clients' needs. And uh, there are male and female dancers. They kind of did that and so that it wasn't all sort of one direction. Uh, each client wants different kinds of services. Um, nothing, you know, overtly like over the top, like, oh, my God, I can't believe they put that in a game. But the theme of the game is still kind of puzzling to me. It's like, okay, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of different games, a lot of different themes. Hey, uh, there's been a game made about ticks sucking blood, you know? <laughs> there's been <laughs> there's been games made about all kinds of just bizarre. There's been games made about the Industrial Revolution in Lancashire. You know, I mean, I, I, I get that there's room in gaming for different themes. But this one was a bit of a head-scratcher for me. I was like, okay. And so my memories of that kind of industry and then my general kind of discomfort with the industry as kind of this uh, this I kind of feel it's it's usually very exploitative um, you know I know there are people out there who look at it as dancing who look at it as an art form uh, and God knows you know a, a lot of uh, the, the performers keep themselves in great shape and they make a ton of money I know that there are plenty of really quality people out there who have put themselves through college um, and, you know, who make good money and, you know, not everyone who works there is on drugs or into prostitution. I mean, I understand that all those stereotypes aren't true, but to me, it's still a bit of a unsavory, almost a sad kind of a thing that there's such a demand for that. And I, I can't help but feel that whether you're a man or a woman who's a dancer, it's a, it's gotta be a little... I don't know. To, I don't want to use the word degrading, Joel, because that's a very strong word. But there's an ob, there's an objectification where you're being looked at as something rather than as a person that is unsettling to me. So that was the second one. And then the last one um, was the recent game Five Tribes. So I've been waiting for this game for a while. I tried to get it at Gen Con, but they had very few copies, and it was very difficult to try to get. I was never able to score myself a copy. Well, lo and behold, GameSurplus.com uh, has it in stock, and I get an email from uh, Velma, uh, the new owner, um, and she says to me, hey, you know, I've, I've got this game. Uh, would you like a copy? I'm like, oh, yeah, I would love to, to get a copy of that. And I got the game, and I opened it up. It's beautiful, beautiful pieces, beautiful artwork. Everything is fantastic. And then I noticed that there's these commodity cards, and they're like uh, wheat and, um, you know, spices and all of these different things. And one of the commodities is slaves. And it shows this, this guy in like a turban, uh, basically naked except for a loincloth with a chain dangling from his wrist down to the ground. And he's a commodity. Now... He's not worth anything in game terms as, um, you know, a, a commodity as far as the set building part of Five Tribes, which involves these commodities. But he is used as a currency, right? He's used as property, as a currency, as money for acquiring these gins or, or doing these other things in the game. And the thought that struck me when I, when I played the game when I was done was I was like, why did that need to be there? Like, it could have been anything. It could have been diamonds. It could have been, you know, some other kind of resource. You know, there's gems in the game, but maybe diamonds, you know, a big picture of a diamond. And, you know, to really get the djinn's attention, you have to go with an elder holding this precious diamond, and that will draw him to you. Like, my problem was, in game terms, design from a design standpoint, I could see no reason why that needed to be there. Um... 
there's not enough else in five tribes to me that was thematic enough that you could justify those cards being there saying well that's part of that world that's part of that time it's part of that that you know literary kind of heritage you know alibaba and then you have the slaves and it's an abstract game i mean there's there's really no theme there other than the beautiful artwork of the gin cards it, there's not really enough theme there for me to consider that a thematic game and that therefore this is adding to the realism of it so to me i thought to myself you know there's no reason for those cards to have needed to be there. And now I'm like kind of very, I'm like mildly uncomfortable about that. You know, when I'm explaining the game to people and I see these slave cards pop up and I have to explain to them, yeah, these are slaves. And I, it was really funny, Joel, because right before we recorded, I watched a wonderful review with the shut up and sit down guys. And when he got to that portion of the game, he's like, and and here's cloth, and here's this, and look at all these wonderful commodities, and these are slaves, and we won't talk about that right now. You know, it, it's just, he just kind of like w went right over it, didn't want to hit it, um, didn't want to tackle it, and that's kind of my reaction too. It's like, why are they there? Just, I, I don't even want to deal with that in a game like this. This could be like just a regular family game. It's a lot of fun. I like the game. But I didn't understand why that was there. So those are the three games, by way of introduction here, that kind of got me thinking about wanting to do this episode. So, Joel, what I'd like to do now is kind of give you the opportunity to talk about either those games or maybe some other games that maybe had you scratching your head a little bit and give us a little bit of background on why you agreed to come on and stir the pot with me on this show tonight. Sure. Uh, well, you know, this it kind of plays on the back of my head as we've seen uh, the board game hobby, so to speak, evolve over the last several years. Uh, you have games tackling very heavy themes like slavery in Freedom the Underground Railroad. Now, in that particular game, you're actually trying to free the slaves. It's very much a historically based game, but it's not something typical that you would say, oh, hey, board games, uh, freeing slaves. You know, that's not the right. uh, Rorschach test, uh, you know, equivalent there. Uh, so... So I've seen games like that, and you know, a lap dance is one, and a five tribes is one that have recently seen a lot of discussion online. You know, particularly on Board Game Geek about the slaves and five tribes, and also you know, uh, multiple facets of lap dance. Um, but I will take a slight issue with you though in the terms of <laughs> five tribes, because in you know Arabian Nights lore and Alibaba lore, there is slaves in there. And, uh, you know, the game is not the most thematic in the world, but it does have sort of this strange, you know, kind of weird morphing uh, 3D terrain and landscapes and stuff like that. So that's kind of, you know, a similar theme that you find in a lot of that Arabic uh, lore of, you know, cities within bottles and other kinds of weird things that kind of defy the three dimensions. And so there's that aspect of I do find thematic but I also, you know, there are slaves, and that is part of that, uh, you know, that particular type of mythos. It does exist, but uh, having said that, you know, there should be some sensitivity you would expect, uh, you know, to slavery in general. I mean, one of the interesting things to note is that there are more slaves on this earth than there have ever been. And, you know, that's partly due to sex trade and several other things. Um, so slavery still exists and it's not in our faces every day, especially in suburban, I assume America and Europe, 
but I'm sure it's all over the place in several other areas of the world. Um, so I think it is something that I would expect folks to be more sensitive about, and I do agree with you that, hey, why didn't they just use diamonds or something? Uh, now, Five Tribes is the game. I'm just kind of where I'm coming from. I've now played it three times, and I'm kind of wishy-washy lukewarm on the game itself. Um, but this slave thing really is kind of a strange thing because it's a very kind of lighthearted sort of puzzly family slash medium weight game, uh, you know, very abstract with some thematic paste. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, and by the way, there's some slaves here. And, you know, somebody coming along and saying, what do you, why are there slaves here? You know, they don't, they don't really, you know, associate slaves with Arabian Nights or Alibaba. Like, you, you didn't either. And it's not a big part of those stories, but it does exist for sure. It's not a common knowledge, though. And it's like, why would you just throw that down and not, it feels, it feels a little careless, you know? It feels like a little bit careless, like, why did you have to use that? Yes, I think it actually fits. I think it goes with the theme. I think it makes sense in some ways, and mechanically how they work uh, is similar because you can kind of use them to substitute for different meeples that you may or may not have. Um, but it's also like, why? Why wouldn't you just use diamonds or, or a worker or something? Um, you know, because slavery itself is definitely not a joke. So, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. And, though, and as we were talking the other day, uh, you know, on the phone, we kind of came up with a list of games that kind of venture out of either, you know, trading in the Mediterranean or <laughs> fantasy or sci-fi or stuff like that. But even some of those games, uh, you know, you have brutality and murder and killing and, you know, exploitation and backstabbing and all kinds of things that are typically associated with, uh, you know, bad manners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, so there you go. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is is something that you brought up, which is that um, there does seem to be a much larger acceptance of violent themes in games. You know, uh, notice when I was talking about greed, I didn't really have a problem with, you know, the arsonist card and, uh, you know, mm. other cards that depict, you know, uh, where one gangster's knocking off another um, you know, the intimidation, the threats, the corruption, the uh, uh, outright theft and lying and deceiving. And, um, and then you look at war games, you know, which in general are handling difficult themes. I mean, we're talking about somebody playing the Third Reich, you know, right. somebody playing Hitler's forces. And yet when it comes to things like violence, we seem to be much more forgiving. And, I, and I'm using we very generally here. I know I am mm -hmm. much more forgiving like, that doesn't seem to bother me as much. And, and maybe that is hypocritical. You know, maybe that is certainly, you know, not something that uh, should be as accepted as it is. Um, you know, but to, to go back to the war games, you know, I, I'm, when it comes to war games, I kind of almost give them a blanket pass. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason for that is that a war game to me is inherently um, serious it is something that is much more studied. It is something that you are usually playing to have that kind of activity, that what-if activity, or have the sort of uh, uh, opportunity to uh, learn the lessons of what happened in this particular conflict or this particular battle. And right. so because the theme itself is war and because you know 
that war involves lots of uh, death and, and destruction, um, you, you kind of almost are expecting that. And that's kind of where games like Five Tribes, to me, kind of was like a slap. You know, it was like, okay, look at these beautiful wooden palm trees. And, oh, look at the palaces. They're awesome. And then you're like, look at all the different peoples. And there's so many of them in the bag. And they come in so many colors. I love it. And then all of a sudden, right. it's like slaves. It's like, wait a minute. You know, I didn't think I was playing that game. I didn't think I was playing a game that was supposed to be getting me to think about anything serious uh, or evoking any kind of that any kind of reaction, emotional reaction like that. Um, when I'm playing a war game, I am, you know, like when I was playing fire in the lake, the whole time I was playing in that game, I was thinking about my stepfather and I was thinking about my buddy Rob from work, both of whom were in Vietnam. I was thinking about all the stories they told me about Vietnam. I was thinking about all the things they told me about the frustration of the conflict, the tension, the unknown, uh, the constant pressure um, being in an environment like that where literally someone could be five feet away from you and you would never know, you know, right. going on patrol, um, you know, and, and just all of these things. And as I'm playing the game, I can kind of see that in my mind. And I know what happened there. You know, I, I, I fully know um, a lot of the history of that conflict. And I know that it involved a lot of terrible things. Um, but to me, it's a study of it. It's a study of that serious conflict, that time. And so, to me, I'm okay with that. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it, I, I'm much more live, I'm much more likely to be really taken aback by a, a theme that hits me unexpectedly. I, I don't know if that, if that rings true with you as well, but it was something that occurred to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in your last sentence there really kind of rings home because we have thousands upon thousands of war games. We've been kind of, I don't know, inundated with them over the last 50 years or whatever it is. And so we're used to them. You know, it's familiar. And it's just like, uh, you know, certain types of jokes and certain types of television and certain, you know, tropes and movies. We get used to them, even though if you're from another culture, you might come and say, whoa, that's really stupid or offensive. Uh, you know, we do we do get inundated with the war games, so we've become more accepting. I think that's true. I do think that most of the time they kind of are presented as a study of a battle or a war in general. Um, that's very much in contrast to a similar touchy subject, um, you know, like lap dancers or some of these other games, where it's like, well, you're not really studying the lifestyle and getting into, mm, I don't know, I don't know what you would study, but like the psychology of folks that do this for a living, uh, you know, so it's, it does not present it in the same light. And if you take a look at lap dance, which frankly, they still haven't released the rules to. So it's very hard to say with that one. Right. Right. But the art is presented in such a way that you don't expect it to be a serious game. And I don't expect the rules to come out and be this real, you know, brain burning hero or something when I, when we play it, I think it's a card game. I'm not particularly sure, but uh, so it's got a couple things sort of, you know, characteristics that it has. A, it's not a theme that I think has ever been used. I could be wrong. There's probably some obscure game that's about, you know, stripping or something. Right, right. Uh, and, and B, it's it's about, it's presented in a way that is seems whimsical about, frankly, a subject that isn't always funny. So this is the real trick here, I think, is about what your expectation is going in and also, you know, if they achieve that expectation because... If you wanted to make a game about purely sex, right, 
That's one thing. And, you know, that's, that's a whole other topic, really. But if you're going to go in, then you're going to involve stripping. You're going to involve pimps, maybe. You're going to involve, you know, paying money for something that on one side is very personal and intimate and, you know, usually confined into a relationship or some, some sort, uh, then, you know, that's one thing. But now you're adding in all this money and an extra thing and crime, the crime element, maybe. Uh, you know, that's not a funny thing. And so it, they got to really be careful, I think, and walk a fine line. Uh, and I'm just going to lead that into another game, uh, which I think has a similar problem and I know has a similar problem, which Lap Dance may or may not have. And that's uh, Bedpans and Broomsticks, which is a recent release from uh, Mayfair Games. And they really talk out of both sides of their mouth with this, with the rule book and all this stuff. But basically the theme of Bedpans and Broomsticks is one a group of the players are trying to escape from an old folks home and they play these old folks. And then one of the players is like the nurse or something. And so what they do is they even say right in the rule book, which frankly uh, really got under my skin. And basically the old folks have regressed so far and they're so sort of dim-witted and dumb and forgetful, quote unquote, they have dementia and or Alzheimer's, uh, you know, and they can't remember the layout of the nursing home. So it's a tile lane game. And it's kind of like a Scotland Yard or Nuns on the Run, but you're building the board as you play. Um, so it seems to me like they slapped this theme on a game that was like, hey, let's do Nuns on the Run, but you build the building as you play. And they're like, hey, what do we do? Oh, let's just throw on, you know, old folks that are uh, regressing mentally, you know, um, which I can see the humor in. I don't begrudge anybody from, you know, making jokes uh, there was one scene in uh, a movie called Cloud Atlas. One of my favorite parts of the movie was these old folks that escape. Uh, now, they aren't doddering or have dementia or anything. They just, you know, are old, and uh, it's a weird part of the movie, but they kind of escape and all that stuff. And it's pretty funny because they kind of triumphantly uh, best everybody. Uh, but here, you know, dementia is a serious thing, and so is Alzheimer's. And to me, it's super careless to... Uh, to have this as a, as a theme, I think. It, I think. I mean, I think it's awful. I think Mayfair is a, is a great publisher, and I think the designer of the game has designed other great games, and he's going to continue to design great, great games. But this is completely like, why would you do this? You've wasted everybody's time, and I it really, um, I hate to say it upsets me because I'm not going to think about it after we're done talking. <laughs> but it's just dumb. I think it's freaking dumb. I'm sorry. And to me, it's a waste of time. And you have, in that case, I think they failed. They were careless with the theme, and they applied it and pasted it onto a game as a solution, it feels like to me. And they really could have come up with something else and really been a little bit more considered about it. And I have a feeling Lap Dance is probably going to fall into that same thing, but I'm not going to judge it until I see it. But there is a notion of, you know, sex slavery and, uh, you know, and sort of people at the end of the rope. And now they have turned to this lifestyle to make money and all kinds of good stuff. You know, again, it's a little different because there are, like you said, are people that have chosen to be in that lifestyle and, you know, desire to be in that lifestyle and, you know, good on you. You know, I'm not here to judge. Let's keep walking down the street together. But um, so it's a little bit different, right, within bedpans and broomsticks where folks that maybe have been put into a nursing home that didn't want to be there. You know, there's all kinds of stories like that. So I think as, you know, you and I kind of, you know, let's, I'm not going to try to hold us on a pedestal or something. You and I and other folks' voices that comment and criticize games 
Um, you know, just as these people have the right to put these games out, we have the right to shoot them down and say, no, I think that's wrong. And people have the right to disagree with us or agree with us. Right. But I do appreciate on one hand, you know, folks trying to uh, push the boundaries, you know, uh, in, in the one side of my mouth, I'm, I'm trashing bedpans and broomsticks. On the other hand, no, on the other hand, I'm not complimenting them because I feel like it was careless. <laughs> but it's lap hard dance to on one that, hand. Yeah. Yeah, well, after that, on one hand, it feels a little bit calculated because of the way they've leaked the cover, you know, they haven't put out the rules, which is kind of like, you know, come on. So it's a little bit of shock baiting. Uh, but on one sense, it's kind of like, hey, let's dart this out there and get it out there and push that boundary. And probably they're doing it in an irresponsible way. I don't know. But sometimes that has to happen. So maybe somebody else can come along and make a game, you know, about sex or something, you know what I mean? Like, not, not something I'm interested in buying or playing, but there, I think there's room for the board gaming to not just sit in a couched niche of it's either dragons or trading goods, or you know what I mean? So, right, there are a lot of avenues that are going to be explored, and I think those avenues should be explored just as quickly as they should be shot down if they're terrible, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely agree with you um, about the uh, bedpans and broomsticks game that you're talking about. Um, you know, as, as a person who, uh, you know, lost a, a family member, my grandfather, um, to uh, Alzheimer's, um, it's not something that I would ever choose to pick as a theme for a game. Um, it, it just seems very odd to me. Um but but it, it's also odd to me that Brian Mayer picked slavery as the theme for his game. But here's the difference. When Brian Mayer did Freedom the Underground Railroad, he was doing it with the full intention of telling the story of this vital period in United States history, um, telling the story of the entire abolitionist movement, uh, helping you to understand how difficult it was to help enslaved African Americans get out of that condition and to freedom, uh, help you understand the difficulty of trying to finance, trying to find mm -hmm. the funds to keep this movement going, to uh, get people fired up about it, to get lawmakers to do something about it. Um, and, and so, and all of the players are playing on the side of the right. You know, they're playing on the side of those trying to put an end to something that everyone that I know and that I can imagine in the civilized world understands was a bad thing. You know, right. there, there's no one out there saying, well, you know, but slavery isn't always bad. No, it is. It's always bad. It's kind of it's like a, it's like an absolute. And well, so no, there are people out there that there are very few of them, but I just want to say there are people out there that do say that anyway. Well, I hope not, but uh, I don't know anybody. No, neither, neither do I. Neither do I. I know they exist. <laughs> well, I mean, they certainly exist because, as you said, yeah. the slave trade unfortunately is um, uh, right. rampant now. So, um, but but what I'm saying is is that I'm not being put in a position by the designer to do something that I would be horribly uncomfortable with. You know, I don't have to right. play the slave catcher. That's not my job. Like if if right. one person had to play the slave catcher and the plantation owners trying to hold their slaves and trying to extract, I mean, my goodness, the whole way that slaves enter the the southern states through the market could have been turned into this 
horrible, horrible experience of actually auctioning and mm. breaking up, you know, uh, families and all of the things that actually happened. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that could have been part of the game. And, and Brian could have been as a designer and said, well, I'm trying to teach the history. I'm trying to get you to understand how the economic systems of the South depended upon slave labor. I'm trying to get people to understand that there, there was such a demand for labor that you know we had to turn to slavery in order to meet that demand because originally there weren't even close to enough people to work these fields and these plantations in a way to make it profitable. So we had to use slave labor, and now we're going to experience the economy of the South in order to help us understand how the institution started and then how it snaked its way into the economic and social fabric of the South to the point where they refused to give it up, even when technology had progressed to the point where you didn't necessarily need uh, slave labor anymore. You know, it had become institutionalized, and we're going to let you play that side. And then other people are going to play the abolitionists, and it's going to be this very educational experience. He could have done that. But no one would have wanted to play that, that I know of. It's too distasteful. Now, interestingly enough, people will play Germany in World War II. Right. And I don't have the answer to that. You know, I personally have played many, many games of, like, Panzer Blitz or, or you know, uh, um, uh, not Axis and Allies, come on, uh, Squad Leader, um, right. you know, and I've played the Germans plenty of times. Fully- well, let me stop you right there. Because we, we, me and you, we are American citizens. Right. And the, you know, the era of Freedom the Underground Railroad is our history. Right. Very much so. And, and we've been, you know inundated with our history as we grew up you know it's very vital to our emotional beings now i expect i could be wrong i expect a german citizen is not going to have the greatest time playing the third reich uh in a war game i mean and we know you know folks are listening they don't know but if you go find just about any you know documentary about board games they're going to explain to you why german games you know which have now evolved into euro games don't have a lot of conflict are not particularly based around World War II or any war at all. And it's because of that, uh, you know, and it kind of goes unsaid a little bit, but I expect that a German person is not going to want to sit down and be like, oh, great, we got to be this jerk, you know, uh, thanks, you know, thanks for that. But uh, so I expect that it has something to do with your upbringing and stuff. So it may be that uh, somebody that lives in uh, Switzerland or something who doesn't have the emotional connection Mm-hmm. and isn't really still dealing with the ramifications of it, which we still are a lot of ways in this country, um, they may not have such an emotional attachment to it, so they may be able to you know, distance themselves emotionally and be able to play it, I hate to say objectively, but I think you're trying, you know what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, could, they could play it as a study. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of folks' cultural backgrounds and upbringing is really going to inform that. And I think, it, it, and also distance from the time period. Now, I don't think we're that distant from slavery in America because we still had the 60s civil rights movement and a lot of things from, you know, extending out of that into the 70s, even into modern day in a lot of ways. Um, so it's still very near and dear to our heart and it's a very sensitive subject. Whereas an American, you know, World War II, most of that generation is very much older, you know, and... 
and you know we fought and we won that war, so it feels good in a way uh, for us. It feels like a, a, a reasonable war to have fought. And so there's a lot of other issues involved there, I think, with that. Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point, and thank you for making that, that, you know, I'm looking at everything through my own lens, um, you know, here as a, a citizen in the United States, and I think there's a lot of, uh, to what you said there. Um, and, and I think that it's also true, that distance thing. Um, you know, I know I myself, when uh, I'm a big fan of Volko Runke's work, but I remember the first time that I got Labyrinth, and I remember right. thinking to myself, I really don't want to play Terrace. This right. is not what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then when a distant plane came out, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of Afghan and, and Iraq war veterans, and that was like a little too fresh for me, I, you know, a little too recent for me, a little too raw, looking at some of the things that have been happening, looking at the difficulties that uh, the veterans have had coming home, trying to get medical care, trying to get psychological care, uh, mm-hmm. trying to get taken care of at all. Um, you know, yes. uh, I, I find it incredibly frustrating and upsetting. And, uh, you know, knowing that the Afghan conflict is still not resolved right. and looking at that, I mean, to me, that was like a little too raw for me, those two games. But I was totally cool diving into Cuba Libre. <laughs> I had right, no problem right, right. with that. Right. And, you know, there's been enough uh, connection for me, but distant connection with, you know, Vietnam for Fire in the Lake, um, you know, and, and so... I think there's something to what you said there about, you know, the cultural lens that you're looking at or the national lens that you're looking at a game through, Um, you know, why you may view something as okay and and something, you know, as not, Um, you know, and while we're talking, uh, you know, kind of trying to wrap our minds around, you know, war games, uh, I did want to mention that there was a couple of comments on uh, Twitter when I posted notice of this episode. And, you know, the, the question that was being asked um, by Travis was wondering whether or not abstraction mm-hmm. in war games and abstraction in general is something that can make a difficult theme more kind of acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he brings up even something like Pandemic, you know, right. where these cubes are representing, you know, diseases running rampant and killing thousands of people. Um, tens of thousands of people in these cities in the world, you know, possibly coming to an end. There's a lot of death being depicted in that game, but it's so abstracted right. that it, it becomes a mental puzzle. It becomes a fun, you know, race against the game and can we do it in time and yay or oh well, man, I say, you know. I would say there's not, there's not really any death uh, depicted. There is disease and there is disease spreading, but... right. There really is no death. There is I don't think there's a single mention of death anywhere. No, there's not, but I mean it's it's right. it's pretty reasonable to infer that sure. you know absolutely. people are absolutely. dying, you know, but it's not no, slapping absolutely. you in the face, you know. Right. Right. Um, you know, whereas yeah. war games it's like, you know, I I fired my artillery and that unit is now gone. Right. You know, and I'm going to put a smoke and a fire counter and a crater where it used to be. Right. You know, and and so there's right. there's a definite kind of overt violence there in that game but it's very abstracted and so and i seem to be okay with that so the only reason i'm I'm harping on this point is basically because i'm trying to figure it out for myself and Mm -hmm. i'm trying to be fair you know Mm -hmm. why there are some things that rankle me and other things that are equally kind of uh difficult when it comes to theme 
um, right. in the subject matter that's being tackled, and I'm okay with that. And I don't even fully understand myself, um, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Do you think abstraction helps make things kind of more palatable, like if it's in the background, or no, doesn't doesn't I, really make a difference? I do, and I don't. And the thing that I come back to, I'll get to the point here, is if you go back to comic books in the 80s, and probably more underground before that, but I'm a big comic book guy, so a lot of the themes that were beginning to be addressed, not, not just in comic books, but in superhero comic books, in the mid-80s, even the early 80s, were very serious, very adult, all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a lot of blowback, not a lot, but there's there's a decent amount of blowback as far as like this is not what comic books are for, you know, kids shouldn't be reading this, yes, this and that. So I think board games is maybe at a similar point where, you know, like you said, you don't want to play greed with your 10-year-old, and I 100% agree. I would not play greed with my 13-year-old. And I would probably feel uncomfortable playing with my, well, he's almost 20, my 20-year-old. Uh, but I don't think that's a problem. I think that we, like I said earlier, we should be pushing the boundaries on these themes. And yes, not every board game is going to be a family game. I don't think they have to be. And I right. think it's good. I think it's good that they're not. And my getting back to the point, um, a distant plane, for example, I enjoy the heck out of that game. And I, I have moments of feeling uncomfortable when I play that game. But I also have moments of insight as well, where, and I got to tell you, I mean, honestly, between Labyrinth and A Distant Plane, I feel like I have a different understanding of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Because as an American citizen, you know, who uh, was in a lot of ways devastated, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but, you know, it was 9-11 was a devastating day, all that kind of stuff, right? Everybody knows that. But... You know, if you can remember those moments, I don't know how it was for everybody, those moments coming out that week, that, you know, two weeks, that year coming out of that event, I mean, it was traumatizing, you know, on a lot of levels, you know, and it more traumatizing for some folks and less for others. And, you know, who's this big, scary Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and all these people? But I have come to different understandings of those folks. And I'm not going to tell you I empathize with them because I do not. But... I do view them more as criminals and less as a political organization, uh, you know. And I don't know if that's a if that's the correct way to view these folks or not. But to me, they're just mafia. That's they, all they are, and they use religion as a you know cult like rallying cry to uh, you know beef up their uh, their organized crime. And that's what they do because they don't really expect that they're going to run a country, do they? They don't really expect that we don't think they're hypocrites because they have harems and sell drugs and call themselves, you know, pure Muslims or whatever they call themselves. So anyway, but through kind of like these games, I'm like, man, these guys are running a criminal organization. They are creating territory. They're selling heroin, you know, in Afghanistan. You know, all these kinds of things are happening. And I don't know if it's the right way to look at it, but I feel like these guys are just criminals and they're evil, awful, brutal people. They remind me of drug cartels in Colombia. You know, that's what they really remind me of. And I don't know if I'm just connecting the dots, but right or wrong, that kind of was affirmed through playing the game and playing around with these pieces on both sides of the fence. You know, I've played a distant planet, I've played every faction, and 
you get the sense of a little bit, at least, at least like a taste of the sense. I don't feel like I'm an expert on, you know, uh, coin operations on a global scale, you know, like, you know, or anything like that. But I, I get a flavor for it. I get it. I get a little bit of an emotional attachment to it. And so that to me is like, that's why I, I like to play Distant Plane. It's probably my least favorite of those coin games because it's a difficult subject matter and it's wonky uh, in some ways, you know, the way that the factions cooperate and then, you know, break apart and stuff like that. And, you know, the Taliban government, the new Taliban, not Taliban, I'm sorry, the Afghan government and how they are very wishy-washy, you know. Uh, it doesn't really favor them in a, in a good light at all in that game because they kind of bounce right. from side to side. Right, right. Uh, anyway, so, but I think that is cool. I think that's good. I think games should do that. And I think, um, you know, so that's coming back to it. I, I totally get, uh, you know, because I remember the first time I played Labyrinth, this was a few years ago, I was like, holy cow. I mean, I was, I got, you know, chills because I was like, wow, this is happening. And, you know, we snuck a nuke in here or something. I'm like, wow. Um, so... Yeah, that's about where I put it down, you know, yeah. like when, when when I was playing and it, and it was like, OK, oh, I can sneak this into the United States. And I'm like, yeah, I just really don't want to do this, you know. Right. Um, and maybe it's because for me personally, like you said, it was just too fresh. and It was too raw, um, you know, yeah. but I do agree with you that there's definitely things that you can learn from them. Uh, I think there's definitely things you can learn from games like Freedom of the Underground Railroad. I mean. You know, we're talking about games where the theme, we're kind of questioning it a little bit, and we're questioning it as a choice. We're questioning it as um, almost from like a sales marketing standpoint, in, in a way, mm -hmm. at least I am. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, so Greed is a really, really good game. I like it. It's super fast, but it's got great decisions, a lot of replayability. But man, you just lost like a third of your potential market you know, but probably only a quarter. But, you know, you, you just lost market. You lost market because of some choices that you made. Why? Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. I look at a game like Lap Dance. I'm like, okay, who are you trying to reach? Is this the Cards Against Humanity crowd? You mm -hmm. know, and I like Cards Against Humanity. I, that It's wrong. It's a completely wrong game. But when you're <laughs> playing with enough adults, with enough adult beverages, you can have some truly crying, I'm going to pee myself moments playing that game you know right. it, it, I, but i would never play it with certain people so i i hear sure. what you're saying like not every game has to be a family game and maybe that's why you know greed and lap dance are okay you know mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not like i said i'm not the arbiter of what's right and wrong here but i do think you know it's something that we need to kind of think about because as you said i like the way you're putting it we're we're starting to see games that are pushing the boundaries you know like what is acceptable what isn't what's a good theme what's not um you know when i was talking to a friend of mine uh, preparing for this episode, you know, he's like, well, you know, Jeff, people could accuse you of the same thing with the game you're working on that, that you're designing, you know, um, your right, game Black right. Diamonds, because you're asking people to take the role. You're trying to tell the story of the miners and the labor movement, but you're doing it by having players play the mine owners who are trying right. as hard as they can to extract as much profit as they can and do the least amount they can possibly do for their workers. Mm -hmm. And so isn't that kind of, you know, questionable? You know, you're forcing, you know, you're asking people to take on this sort of uh, negative role. You know, I'm like, well, touche. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mm -hmm. see that, you know. Um, any game that kind of involves, you know, the, the sort of industrialist is going to inherently 
uh, be about exploitation in some way or another, either exploitation of the natural land, exploitation of political power, economic power, um, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. name it. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, that, that might make people uncomfortable. They might not want to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that there's a lot of room for kind of discussion here. Um, there's other games that I think really, just want, I want to touch on them briefly, that I think really handle a difficult theme very well. And I just okay. want to throw two of them out to you. Um, the first one is a game called Navajo Wars. Now, this is a game uh, that was uh, put out by GMT last year. Um, it is a uh, pretty much marketed as a solo game. And what it is dealing with is it's dealing with the, the history of the Navajo people as they are slowly but surely being encircled and strangled um, by the, the, the United States, you know, by the, mm-hmm. the forces, the troops of the United States. And so this is another one of those games where you're kind of like, wow, you know, this, this is a tough theme. We're talking about this sort of very um, disturbing history that the United States has with the native population, you know, the people who were here first, um, and, and what right. we kind of did to them historically. And normally, you know, this would be a theme that would be interesting to me, but I would kind of shy away from. I don't want to participate in the destruction of the Navajo. Mm-hmm. But what you're actually doing in this game is um, it, it's, it's almost like a um, uh, Victory Point Games, uh, you know, state of siege kind of game, where as the Navajo, you are basically trying to hold on as long as you can to your cultural identity and your cultural heritage. And the game models that beautifully. It models the pressure that is put on the Navajo culturally, um, as well as, you know, through violence and through deprivation and, uh, you know, things that are happening from the outside and then natural things like droughts and things like that. I mean, all of these things that they're having to deal with is modeled extremely well in this game in a very compelling way and in a way that I think really kind of does justice to the story of these people in in a way that I don't feel bad now about playing that game after I've played it a few times. You know, it's, it's one that's still in my collection because I think it tells a fascinating story and it does it very respectfully. And that's the, that's the thing I'm driving at here is this idea of respect you know, when, when I'm looking at a difficult theme, I want it treated respectfully. I, I don't want it treated flippantly. And that kind of goes back to what you're talking about with the bedpans and broomsticks. Flippant treatment of a serious problem that touches yeah. a lot of people. Whereas you look at something like Navajo Wars or you look at something like even a game like CO2, looking at climate change and looking at how difficult it is. That game does a really good job of simulating how difficult it is to get international cooperation, how difficult it is to try to gather the expertise needed and then actually get these green energy projects off the ground, funded, constructed, working. It's, a, it's not easy, and it does a really good job of kind of showing you the kind of sort of cooperation in a free market world, which are two kind of mutually exclusive statements, how to try to get that to work. And, you know, again, you know, a theme that a lot of people wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, um, especially dealing with people here in the United States who still, for some bizarre reason, continue to want to try to tell me that climate change isn't happening. 
Um, it's elementary school science. It's definitely happening. And, you know, I don't know why people are denying it, but, uh, you know, it, it, it handles that theme really well. Even if you don't totally understand it, you can still play the game and you get an actual feel for the, the problems that are going to be created by this. So there's a way to deal with a, with a theme. And maybe that's why I like war games. You know, I, I, I know I'm kind of rambling here a little bit, but maybe it's like a stream of consciousness thing. Maybe that's why I'm okay with war games because they're, they're treating the subject respectfully, you know? They're, there's, they're, they're treating it from, from a place of, um, uh, of you know, I, we, we want to show you something. We want to teach you something. We want you to look at this. We want you to see this or experience this. It's not this kind of flippant sort of attitude, you know? Right, right. Um, and, and maybe that's why there's certain games that really kind of bother me. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, then you also have, you know, the, the whole sort of puritanical problem. I, I want to kind of jump on board with this one here and throw this one in your court. You know, um, other people. Gee, thanks. Yeah. Other people <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh, uh, another person tweeted um, and we had a, a question uh, posted on the Guild page about, you know, well, what about, uh, you know, all the controversy over, you know, the Seven Wonders, you know, altar card and the bathhouse card and uh, the mm. Dominion mm -hmm. harem card, you know, and a lot of people got really up in arms about that, you know. Um, I, I, you know, again, it sounds weird. I'm uncomfortable with lap dance. I'm uncomfortable with streetwalkers, but I'm okay with all of those things that I just basically mentioned. Maybe not harem so much, but you know, the, when I look at like the Seven Wonders cards, like the Baths card, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Like I'll take my kids. My kids have been to museums many times. The, the, the naked female form or male form, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to try and hide that from them. That's not anything right. that I think should be a problem. Now, if it was uh, a depiction of someone being attacked, you know, a woman being attacked or something, I would obviously have a problem with that. I, I don't want my kids to be uh, having to deal with that at this young of an age. Like, that's nothing I would ever want to put in front of them. Right. And the sort of sadness of organized prostitution not something i want to put in front of them it's not something that i i want to but i don't have a problem with with uh you know um just the the presentation of a form what what do you think about you know the the problems the flare-ups if you want uh to call it that over things like the art on those cards mm, i don't think i don't sometimes i don't think they're legitimate Flare-ups. I mean, I think they are sort of folks on the internet talking. Because have they changed the... Well, I think Yastari changed one of their covers or something, if I remember right. Uh, but like the Harem card in Dominion. Did that, did that ever change? No, not that I know that? of, no. Yeah, so it's like it was it's just people on the internet talking. And I think a lot of times that's what it is. And it's really nothing, you know. And it comes down to if you don't find that particular card appropriate for your house and your family and your children or whatever the case may be, then don't buy it and don't bring it in there. Nobody's, nobody's broadcasting this game into your house, unlike television. Right. right. Um, so, and even then you have some control over the television as well. Right. So I think that just kind of comes down to, you know, don't let society parent your kids, you parent your kids, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you govern your own uh, intake. So sometimes it, it, it's a little bit overblown, and I think it's just because, um, 
you know, we, we do have kind of a niche hobby and, uh, you know, and it's a small group. It's a very intimate group, uh, in, in some regard. I mean, uh, compared to, you know, other things like movies or video games and stuff, but, um, but that's good. Cause I think we act, frankly, we have a decent level of discussion in the hobby thus far. Right. Um, you know, people may say stupid things on the internet forum, but what else is new or a YouTube <laughs> comment or, or right. Facebook or whatever, you know, right, right. that's going to happen from time to time and that's all right. But I think by and large, we actually have a great group of people, uh, you know, with a million or two million or five million people in the world that play board games a lot, you know, uh, by and large, are a group of very smart people. So um, that ends my pandering for the day. But <laughs> but I really do. I really do think that. I mean, I do. I really yeah, do think yeah. that. Honestly. Well, you know, I, 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 I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I also have to pick up on what you just said, which is, you know, uh, you know, you said, Hey, if you have a problem with the harem card, you know, don't bring that into your house. You know, uh, you don't, mm-hmm. nobody's forcing you to buy it. Well, I mean, the same can be said for lap dance. The same could be said for bed, bedpans and broomsticks. I mean, you know, it, the same thing can be said for any game. And, and that is kind of a default kind of answer that I think is acceptable to everybody. Um, but I, I also don't want to back away from the fact that I think that there are some themes that just, I really just don't know that they need to be made. You know, I, I really just don't know. Okay. Yeah. Board games right now to me are about one of two things. They're either about entertainment, getting together with your friends and your family and having a good time and playing a game. Or increasingly, they're becoming a little bit more about education or trying to teach you something or show you something about a certain period in history or a certain event or a certain time or a certain place. And, you know, there's so many topics and so many areas that I think are worthwhile explorations um, where you can kind of marry a board game design to a particular theme that it does make me wonder. Like, I, I just, there is no way that I can think of that you could put out a game of confused Alzheimer's patients and have me ever say, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. I just, mm-hmm. I don't think it would ever be a good idea. I mean, maybe if you were trying to use the game, you know, it's kind of ironic though, because like I could see someone trying to make, uh, and this was my friend Chris who said this, um, make a memory style game. Mm-hmm where your score in the game is dependent upon if you can remember where things are, but part of the game is that you are randomly moving some pieces around when it's not that player's turn and they can't see what's happening, and so they become confused. And that Mm. something like that would maybe be a good vehicle to teach people how confusing it is and how difficult it is for someone with that as a sort of like an educational tool or a sensitivity tool, like for someone who's going to be working with an Alzheimer's patient. There you go. Yeah. But, but to turn it into try to make it entertainment. See, there's that purpose again that Mm -hmm. I was talking Mm -hmm. about to try Mm -hmm. to turn it into entertainment, something funny. I have a problem with that. And, and I, and I'm not going to back away from that. I don't think that should have been made. Right. So, Uh, yeah, you know, maybe that's kind of the the defining kind of I don't know. I don't think anybody can say it's the defining, but including me. But maybe that's one of the things that we should look at is like what is the overt purpose 
of the game. What is it trying to do? Is it trying to teach you something, show Mm. you something, or is it trying to be fun? They're both equally valuable things, in my opinion. Right. Uh, you know, well, I, you know, but but don't try to take something that's mismatched to right. the purpose you're trying to present. Right. Well, think about it from the perspective of I can think of two movies that have to do with, uh, you know, mental capacity and hospital situations that I think are probably some of my all time uh, favorite movies. Probably not ones that I will watch often, but once every several years I may watch it if they come on TV or something. And one is Awakenings, uh, uh-huh. which has uh, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, and they awaken these patients who are borderline comatose. Um, and I can't remember what the the disease they had was. And they come up with this drug. It's a true story. And, you know, they're awake for a couple of months or something mm-hmm. or about a year. And then they end up regressing because the medicine isn't doing you know all that they thought it, it could do. And it has very lighthearted moments, very funny moments. You know, Robin Williams is obviously in it. But it's a very serious movie overall. And uh, it's a very sad movie. And the other one is, you know, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, Jack Nicholson, and it, that one hits on a ton of levels. Um, that is a powerful movie and really a big commentary on, I think, several aspects. We don't need to talk about movies for the rest of the show. But those are movies that have, you know, addressed mental institutions, hospitals, and the treatment of folks in those institutions. And I would recommend everybody go see those movies, everybody on this earth, you know, of a certain age. I wouldn't make a five-year-old go watch it. Right, right. But, but you know, and so I think it's okay to try to address that, but you have to understand that gaming is different than movies, and that is going to be a different thing. Don't put me in the role of, you know, somebody that's persecuting the mentally ill. Or, right, don't put me in the role of Nurse Ratchet. yeah. No. <laughs> right. Please, God, no. And... You know, don't put me in the, uh, you know, Billy or whatever his name is uh, at the end of the movie either. Because, you know, he, you know, anyway, but that is, you got to be careful. The games are, you can't be frivolous with the games. And these folks that made these movies, they didn't go into these frivolously. You know, those actors and directors and writers took it very seriously and put their hearts and souls into making it. At least I feel they did. And... I think the same needs to be required and expected of board game publishers and designers when tackling these gems, uh, or uh, these themes. Right. And, you know, there's no reason they're not capable of tackling these kinds of themes. You know, we've seen it, Freedom of the Underground Railroad, The Distant Plane, um, you know, a couple other things like that. Again, Navajo Wars. Um, So, and, and there's no reason that they can't attack things from a lighthearted perspective. And that's the one thing I don't want to try to come down on i think there is room to not necessarily come at something from a comedic perspective mm-hmm. but from an interesting perspective and i'll throw out uh, three games on our list that we went over and we'll just we can go from there uh ladies and gentlemen is a very interesting game that is it's not a serious it's definitely not a study i guess in some ways it kind of is and then tomorrow <laughs> is a very oddball theme yeah yeah and then i would throw in sons of anarchy there now um because Sons of Anarchy is not serious, it's about crime, but it's not a serious look at crime. But if you start with ladies and gentlemen, you know, each team is, is two players, and they're playing to win as a team. One player is the husband, the one is the wife. The husband goes off and does his job, and the wife goes shopping. You know, a very stereotypical base, you know, almost awful depictions of the husband's role and the wife's role. 
but it's set in like Victorian era England and it's meant to be very humorous. And if you play it with the right folks that can get really into the role, they see how ridiculous their roles are. And at the end of the day, you end up seeing, boy, these poor people that lived in Victorian era England, they were expected to be the certain type of person and how awful. And But at the same time, how funny, because you know what? We're way removed and we've hopefully evolved beyond all that stupid stuff. And that's interesting. And you can have the guys playing the wives and, and, and the gals playing the husbands and vice versa, or have a bunch of men sitting around playing all the <laughs> different roles and, or women playing all the different roles together. So I think that game, I actually don't really care for that game because it's like, it's not that fun, like mechanically, but it's cool. I think it's cool. I think it's a, a game people should play and try because it does elicit interesting jokes and conversation and stuff. I think without being so, you know, whatever, sexist and stuff like that. So I think there, that's, a, that's a good uh, example of a game that takes on a subject comically and with a less serious heart, and it does a good job of it. Um, so I don't know if you've played Ladies and Gentlemen or not. But oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've played it uh, quite a few times, and I've played it at conventions, and uh, played it with uh, adults, played it with kids. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's usually a really good time. People really buy into it. You know, they they get into the spirit of trying to make this you know outfit, and uh, you know, for this this final ball that you know the women are going to attend, and uh, the ridiculousness of you know the men's job of. Uh, you know, trying to get these sets of tokens to sell them, you know, for contracts to earn money. And um, it really is just horribly misogynist and, and sexist and, and any right. other word that you can think of. There's just no doubt about it. Right. Um, but because of the way it's presented, you know, it, it seems to work for some reason. You know, um, I have yet to play it with someone who's been offended by it. Now, I know there are people out there who are offended by that game. In my personal experience, I have not met any. You know, it's right. just a silly, light, fun game. And it does always seem to elicit some conversation about the stereotypical nature of the roles and the time period and the obsession with fashion and acquisition and, um, you know, uh, status and all of these things that were so part and parcel of that time period. And, you know, it seems to have generated some decent conversations among the people that I played it with. So I don't have a problem with it, but I I could see, um, you know, somebody, I could see, you know, people maybe being a little upset by the stereotypical nature, uh, especially, you know, in in which the women are being presented, um, but also the men too, you know, that that Mm -hmm. the men are just supposed to go out there and work and get the money and then hand it over to their wives and, you know, buy them whatever it is they want, and this is going to equate to success and victory. Um, right. There's there's definitely stereotypical gender roles there. But, you know, what do you think about the role, the way in which women are presented in gaming? Now, that's like a whole different topic, I know. But right. I know that that's an area that can cause quite a lot of consternation as well. You know, you look at the way uh, women are depicted in games. Um, you know, it's very much that sort of Frank Frazetta, you know, old school kind of, you know, thing where you have, uh, you know, the, the women presented usually scantily clad, very voluptuous, 
right. um, you know, uh, just very sort of stereotypical body type, you know, for modern times. And, sure. you know, that that it can be very uh, difficult, you know, that can, I, I worry about that sometimes. I mean, I have two daughters, and so, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that they are constantly being smacked in the face with images and expectations through television, through print media, through uh, electronic media of what they're supposed to look like and how they're supposed to act and the things they're supposed to do. And it's very hard sometimes to not get upset at the way women and, and young ladies are presented in the media um, in the same way that it's very easy to get upset that you know, it seems like every dang commercial that I see, um, you know, about like, you know, young African-American males, apparently they all play basketball right. and that's like all they do. Like, I don't see young African-American males in anything unless mm -hmm. it's some sort of commercial for a sport, mm -hmm. you know, and other than like the Allstate dude and, you know, there's some new commercials now that are kind of showing um, you know, African-Americans um, and, and others in different roles than you're used to seeing them still predominantly, you know, in media, you're seeing people still presented in a very stereotypical view. So I can understand why someone might have a problem with ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's another game that I played that was a space theme game and all of the women in the game were in the sort of Star Trek super duper short skirts and all of the women characters were like the communications officer and right. the doctor. And it's like, well, why not the security officer? Why not? I mean, haven't we evolved enough? Like, you know, think about like what Star Trek has done, you know, for right. putting women in positions of authority and trying to change that stereotype. And yet we're going to hearken back to the 1960, what 67, 68 yeah. version of Star Trek and we're going to present women that way, you right. know, and right. the, I don't get that. Like, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, <laughs> I think that is a honestly, I think that's its own show, um, because when you start to delve into I'm just going to go right into the heart of it, gender roles. Right. Uh, you got a whole other ball of wax there. And I think that uh, board gaming does not escape uh, these stereotypes at all. And I think you've touched on that. Um, there are not a lot of depictions of, you know, uh, folks that aren't white, uh, folks that aren't Euro European or, or, or American, you know. Uh, I mean, there are and there aren't. But, you know, women of a certain body type, all that stuff. It's just, it's just not, there's not a lot of it. And it needs to be better. There needs to be a better representation, I think, in, uh, this actually came up on Twitter the other day, of board game media, of other folks it's all freaking european and american white guys right. between the age of like 30 and 50 you know um you know there there are you know women and, and, and other folks that are a part of the board game media but there needs to be a lot more or, right you know than there is now there just should be because that's not who is only playing the games you know that's, that's not the truth anymore Right, it's not right. the 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 crusty white guy that hasn't showered in a week, you know, or whatever the thing is. Um, so I think there just needs to be more. I don't think there's some sinister plot either. 
No, no, no. Uh, no, no I don't think so hand, either. I'm not no. saying you're saying that, but I think I, you know, if anybody's listening, I would just be encouraging. Just go out and and make a game about something that is personal to you, or become a board game, you know, uh, this video person or podcaster or write reviews and you know do that stuff because nobody else is going to do that except for you or whoever it is. And I want to see more of that. I'd like to see, because I really enjoy games, I would like to see games really go in different directions. I don't really care how popular games become. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not worried about the marketability and the, you know, how many, much money the publishers make. I, who cares? I can turn to my shelf and I've got, you know, 150 games that I can play for the rest of my life. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I'm good, you know. Um but I want to see games go in different directions. I, we don't need the same stuff spit back out at us. And that goes, you know, for media and, and people and positions at publishers and, you know, more women designers, more African-American designers, more Mexican designers, more Colombian designers, you know. Right, right. Uh, everything, you know. So I think we need more of that. And I would say, but nobody's, maybe there's people stopping that, you know. I know we, we've heard, I don't know how much you're, in tune with this, but there's been a lot of stupidity in the video game industry um, in, in this regard of women being treated horribly in positions of, you know, at video game companies and stuff that we've been hearing about. No, and, I haven't followed that. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that, but it, you know, yeah, it, it's a whole cesspool and quagmire of awfulness is what that is. And, you know, um, I don't want to branch the conversation, but I think more people need to get into it. You know, I, I just wish I just wish it would happen. You know, um, I'm not going to do a whole lot about it. I'm not like I'm going to go march in the streets or anything after the, we're done recording here. But right, I, just, right. I want it to happen. That's all I'm telling you is I want it to happen, and I hope it does. Right. Uh, but I do think it's a it's a conversation that um, I feel slightly uncomfortable with having because there's no women on the show right now. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So no, uh, I'm and, sure and you're right. And there's no you know there's no African Americans and I know enough from growing up in a couple of cities in California to know that other folks' experiences is not the same as me, 100%. Right. And I'll just leave it at that, and I definitely cannot speak for people. And that's all there is to that. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts about that, because I, I, I know that was a tangent, um, but it's one that, you know, like you said, we could kind of do a whole show on. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to kind of try to get like a panel discussion uh, mm -hmm. put together, you know, and, and, and get some folks on who might be willing to talk about it either, you know, on my show or your show or a Google hangout or something right. where we kind of, you know, look at that sort of, uh, look at board gaming through that lens and, you know, see where we're going with that and, you know, what kind of strides are being made, uh, or not made. What are the hurdles? Um, you know, things of that nature. So, um, okay, uh, circling back to the original topic here, which is difficult themes, uh, I want to hit on a couple of, of other games that, that I wanted to kind of talk about um, okay. and for, for two reasons. And, and one of them is the, the themes that I'm a little uncomfortable with. I'm going back to the same accusation that was leveled against me, um, you know, with, with the game that I've been designing of, you know, well if you're putting people in a position where they have to play somebody or do something that is not what you would consider to be, you know, the side of the angels or, or the good guys or, or the, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, that can make some people uncomfortable. And, and I kind of get that because, you know, I've played a couple of games. Like uh, I played just the other night, I played pandemic contagion 
And, you know, this is a really slick, nifty little game. Um, I think the, the production quality is gorgeous. Uh, I think the game mechanics uh, seem very solid. I've only played it a couple of times. But as I was playing it, you know, there's a couple of times where I'm like, okay, so wait a minute. So I'm not trying to save the world. I'm trying to destroy the world. So we're right. flipping Pandemic on its head. And I'm actually playing a virus that is, you know, trying to knock out as many cities. You know, you actually try to saturate the city with disease to the point where it flips over and you score points for doing that as the virus. Like, you know, yay, virus. You know, you have fought back against humanity. I mean, the, the kind of blurb text in the beginning actually tries to put you in that mindset, you know. For too long, humanity has tried to destroy you. Now you will strike back. And, you know, I'm thinking about... I'm hearing about Ebola every day, right. um, you know, and, and of course Ebola has been around for quite a long time, but you know it's it's reaching a, a larger epidemic proportion recently, and mm. this is not something, you know, the idea of diseases spreading and me being the disease. It's just not something. There's nothing wrong with the game. I'm not saying that it's a bad game, but it's like it puts me in that spot that we were talking about where I'm just not really interested in doing that. Like that that just kind of, I don't want to be that thing. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that. Um, and that's very much the same to me, the whole premise behind the game Tomorrow, which is right. kind of like population control through nuclear war, disease, chemical warfare, and death. Yes. And that, you know, okay, I understand that the Earth is a closed system. I understand that the Earth only has a certain capacity to support life. I understand that there will come a point in time, if we're not really creative and don't get our act together, that we will reach the point where, you know, uh, things are going to start happening. You know, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the Earth will take care of itself, whether or not we're still here is entirely a different matter. But right. eventually, yeah, there, there's going to be a tipping point. Um, but trying to take this notion of population control through nuclear war and chemical war and, and, and death and disease, it's just, again, it's like, why? I, I don't want to do that thought experiment. I can run mm -hmm. that thought experiment out in my head or right. through conversation or through, you know, reading or, or watching a news report. I don't want to play a game. Now, this sounds a little hypocritical because I just said I'm okay with exploring, you know, the roots of terrorism and uh, insurgent warfare. I'm, I'm okay with that. But yeah. this one bothers me a little bit. And, I, again, I'm trying to put my finger on it. What are your thoughts about those two games? Do you have any reaction to those? I do. I, I, I think you're okay to be a hypocrite. I think there's nothing wrong with being a hypocrite <laughs> in this regard because okay. it's for, you know, it's for your, it's your own time. It's your own pleasure, your own leisure. And, uh, and you, you get to choose what you get to do with it. You know, you get to have your opinions on it and you can, you can get to say those opinions. And if you think tomorrow and pandemic contagion are something you don't want to explore and you don't think they're worth exploring, then you should say that. Right. And I think that that's okay. Um, I have less of a problem with them. Um, I haven't played tomorrow and pandemic contagion. I just kind of saw a demo at Gen Con of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, to me, it's, it's kind of, those are weird. It's like, they don't really, they're out there. I don't really think about them that much. I just kind of know they're there and it's okay. It's not something I really gets, gets me excited. 
It doesn't really shock me. You know, they're kind of just kind of lukewarm, milk toast themes to me because, you know, I'm kind of with you. Like, you know, we're, the world's getting more crowded. It's getting bigger. We're going to run out of water in 50 years or whatever people tell me. And, you know, I think it's interesting subject matter. I think it's it's worth studying. It's kind of like the global warming thing in CO2 or uh, kind of like in Imperial where you have these sort of secret cabal of folks, you know, funding wars everywhere. And it, it, it it's interesting to me because it's like these subjects that are much bigger than the individual. And I feel so ineffectual when I think about things on that level. You know, uh, I'm going to take a shot at my own little area here. I live in northern Idaho where everybody thinks everything is a conspiracy to, you know, take all away our rights and all this stuff like that. I mean, it's like we're inundated with these kind of messages all the time. Yes, okay, you know, and so, and, you know, it, honestly, it gets old. But I am interested a little bit in those kind of themes just personally, like, okay, this is so beyond my capability to have any effect on that they do kind of interest me in a little bit because I feel like I can investigate them a little bit, take some small piece from them and go, okay, well, if the poop does hit the fan at some point, then I'm going to be on my own. That's pretty much how I figure it you know, <laughs> with, with, you know, my close group of friends and family, of course. Right. Right. In your um, bunker. Yes. <laughs> in my bunker. Well, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll be like in Mad Max. I'll be cruising around with some gang and uh, we'll be in the weekend. That's just wiped out in the first week. But, That's right. Um, He'll have your board games, <laughs> <laughs> some yes. extra gasoline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so this this seems kind of interest me a little bit because I feel like it's so beyond our control in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there are sort of the principalities and the forces that be that right. you don't you don't really get a whole lot of say on what's happening on that level. Um, you know, so I think it's interesting. And in, but getting back to one of the points is the abstraction level with tomorrow and pandemic contagion. The abstraction really helps those games there because if you were like really getting down to the humanity of what's happening you know people being infected with disease or biological weapons or radiation at the you know the individual level what a horrible you know awful death to go through in those last moments i mean that's not what the game is giving you um so they abstract things on uh, you know necessarily (laughs) in those games from a perspective of somebody that is pushing a spreadsheet you know and some of these bureaucrats and things that are looking at these problems probably from a numbers perspective because if you got down to the humanity level, it would be so overwhelming that you couldn't deal with it and you couldn't make a decision right or wrong about any of these crazy problems that are going to confront us, hopefully after I'm dead. Right. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, but I, on the one hand, I do think we can have some effectual change about certain things like... Um, you know, the food situation that's going to happen. But anyway, that's a whole other topic there and I'm not running for office. So there we go. <laughs> um, well, let me, yeah, let anyway, me, let me ask you one. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I've been doing it all night. Let me ask yeah. you one last question, which is, okay. Uh, I, I want to kind of talk about how difficult themes are sometimes tackled head on, you know, head down, hit with the shoulder, drive them to the ground, uh, nice, good football tackle, or whether they are whiffed, you know, whether they try to kind of just just kind of gloss it and move on. And and to me, one of the games is Puerto Rico. 
And in Puerto Rico, it's it's often been criticized for kind of taking this whiff at dealing with the theme, dealing with the topic. You know, what what we're looking right. at here, are we really looking at colonists or are we looking at slaves, you know? And if you look at the actual history of the region, we're pretty much looking at slaves here, you know? And, and they really kind of just refused to deal with that. They just sort of glossed over it and said, you know, well, we're just not going to, we're not going to deal with that at all. And then on the other side, you have a game like Endeavor, um, mm-hmm. which was a design that came out many years ago, and just bold, outright, you know, one of the sort of advancement cards you can take early in the game is the slavery card. And if you take that card and you use that card, you are going to gain an enormous economic advantage in game terms right. for you know quite a long time as long as you hold that card. But if you, if you have not gotten rid of that card by the end of the game, if you still hold the slave card, you're basically going to get slammed at the end of the game. And I kind of, while that's a, still a, a very large abstraction of the issue and the problem of slavery, I respected the fact that the designer like tackled it. Like they're like, mm. I'm not going to hide it. Here's the card. And yes, you know, there, there, there were benefits to this for the people who were the slave owners, you know, who were the people who were using slaves. But by the end of the game, if you have not found a way to get yourself to a point where you understand that that's not the way to go, that that is wrong, Mm -hmm. then, you know, in game terms, just as you benefit from it, you will also suffer from it because you will be a pariah. You know, you will be, you know, outcast because everyone else understands that this is not the way to do things and you're still holding on to this institution, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of appreciated that about that design. So, you know, what do you think about this idea of, you know, games that kind of try to gloss it over and then games that kind of come right out? You know, because I think we've already talked about, you know, the, the idea of how you treat, you know, what kind of point of view you're coming at the theme from can be very important. Right. Um, the people that you're playing with can, of course, be important. Um, whether the game is trying to show you or teach you something can be important, but you know how it's presented to you, uh, you know if at all, I think can be important as well. Like whether you're kind of doing a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, or whether you're actually addressing it. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a case by case basis. You know, it's uh, just you gotta you gotta take it one game at a time, and I don't think there's any kind of definition that's gonna fall across all games. Um, you know, it's. Uh, and it's going to be a very personal thing, you know, and I, I agree. I think it's something that I think increasingly, I hope, publishers, designers, artists, everybody is going to be aware of. And I think the point is, I don't think people should shy away from it because that's where I think the problem becomes in. Uh, you know, a lot of times people like, it's a bad example, but I'll use it. A lot of times people say, oh, well, don't you read the YouTube comments, ignore them. Yes and no. To a certain extent, you want to ignore the jerks and all that kind of stuff. But you also should call them out and tell them, no, that's not right. That's not acceptable here. You're an idiot or whatever else you want to call them. <laughs> and, you know, we have, we, I got no time for you. You're not allowed here. And I think that's, uh, that is an attitude I think that needs to exist more online. And I know it exists at least in my gaming group where if an a-hole shows up to my gaming group, uh, let's say there was a misogynist, sexist pig that showed up to my group and had certain things. I would be like, you are not welcome here. Go away. You know, or if a racist showed up to my group or something or somebody that used excessive foul language, which 
probably would get me kicked out of my group. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, anyway. but uh, you know, so I think these things need to be addressed and people should, as media critics and, and, and game players and folks posting on forums and writing reviews on Board Game Geek and things, go ahead and address it. You know, don't beat around the bush with it and throw your opinions out there, back everything up you can as best as you can and, you know, go for it. And I think there is going to be some gray area. Like Puerto Rico is a very nebulous one. I mean, they're just little discs and they don't really tell you a lot about them, but you kind of feel like, you know, they are what they are. And, you know, when I first played the game, I did not think slaves. You know, honestly, I thought, okay, these are the workers coming over from somewhere until I got on Board Game Geek and they were like, oh, these are slaves. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you know, so it's just like, it is what it is. And I think folks just need to be aware and be conscientious about, you know, how they talk about it, how they present it in the game and don't be afraid of it. You know, just go for it. You know, if you want to tackle a difficult theme, don't worry about what people are going to say, know what you're going to say about it and what you have to say as an artist, you know, as a designer, as a publisher, as a, you know, as a capital A artist, you know, right. know what you're going to say and have something to say about it. Don't just be pumping out, you know, the next uh, social deduction game and go, oh, you know, what would be a good theme? Let's throw on people with dementia, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, I don't know. So right. just take some care and take some effort and put that behind it. And I think we're okay. Yeah, you know, and I, I want to pick up on your uh, your comment about calling people out um, yeah. and, and not being afraid to confront it. Um, I think that's a really important uh, lesson uh, in general. You know, I mean, we're at the end of the day, we're only talking about board games here. But, you know, I think we, we all have kind of come to the, the realization that, you know, board games can do some fairly powerful things. Um, you know, when the designers are able to kind of capture that lightning in a bottle um, and present something to you that's going to really make you think. But I, I do think that, you know, questioning these things, you know, again, a lot of the games that I've talked about, I own them. And I'm not necessarily planning on getting rid of them. It's not that I think that they're terrible, but I, I have questions. You know, they're the things that pop into my head, and I'm like, huh, why would they do that? Or I'm not sure I like that. And, and I think you're right. I think we need to kind of uh, say something about it. You know, the, too many times mm -hmm. I think things are just let lie. Um, you know, too many times things are just kind of let go. Um, and I think if you have a problem with something, I, I, I would definitely subscribe to your call, you know, call to arms to kind of say, you know, stand up and say something about it. Uh, you know, the best example I can think of, I wish I could remember the name of the town, Joel, but it was like, I read an article, it was years ago, it was about a town somewhere in like the Midwest, and the uh, Ku Klux Klan was um, petitioning, they wanted to have a parade. And the town blocked it, blocked it, blocked it. It went to court. It went to a higher court. And finally, the decision was handed down. You know what? They have the right to have their march, to have their parade. If that's, mm -hmm. you know, they, that is their constitutional right. You cannot stop them. And what was the most inspiring thing to me ever that I've heard in, in a long time, and it stuck with me ever since I read the story, I wish I could remember where it was, was... Instead of everybody just kind of being upset about it and being mad about it and being disappointed and all of these things, what mm -hmm. they did was everybody in town showed up, 
lined the main street of the town as the clan marched down. And as they marched down, they all turned their back on them. Mm-hmm. And that yep. to me was incredibly like that was so much better than just staying at home and complaining about it. Right. It was so much better than being disappointed in, you know, uh, the choices that people would still make in this day and age to be part of that group. Instead, they said, you know what, we're going to show up. We're going to actually be there, mm-hmm. but we're going to make it very clear. We're not going to be violent, but we're going to make it very clear that we want no part of anything that you're about. So right. you might have the right to do that, but we have the right to let you know what we think of you. Uh, and yeah. and I think that that is an extreme example of what you're talking about, but I think it is a, an example nonetheless. It's something that I try to keep in mind, you know, um, that, that it, is, it is good to speak up. It is good to show how you feel. And, um, you know, I'm not comparing these game designers in any way, um, you know, to an organization like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm just trying right. to use that as an example of yep. people standing up and doing something to express how they feel rather than just letting that fester. And so I think that the conversations we can have about some of these themes is only going to help things because if we choose to seek to push the envelope like you're talking about, which I think is a great thing in game design, we can talk to each other about how that envelope is being pushed and we can make some better decisions and we can challenge each other to constantly be trying to um, present these ideas in the best possible way that we can. So... Um, Joel, I want to thank you for agreeing to come on the show tonight and talking about this topic with me. Um, I don't know that we really answered anything definitively in any way, shape, or form, but uh, you know, I enjoyed talking with you about it. I would really welcome you know to hear what other people have to say about it who listen. Um, I'm always interested in having any kind of respectful dialogue with anybody who wants to talk with me about something, um, you know, on an online forum or, or what have you, whether it's on Board Game Geek or through, you know, Geek Mail or, or what it, whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, I'm open to any kind of civil discourse at any time. And I would welcome that if people have some alternate views or ideas or suggestions or, you know, think that maybe, uh, you know, I was off the mark a little bit. So, um, if you have any comments, you know, please share them on the thread on Board Game Geek for the episode. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll be sure to maybe try and continue the conversation there. So, Joel, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on the show tonight. No, thanks, Jeff. Uh, it was a good, good talk, and uh, thank you. And now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So for this special episode about uh, theme in games, I thought it only appropriate to tackle a brand new release uh, called The Battle of Five Armies. This is from Ares Games. Uh, This is a game that is set in the uh, world of J.R.R. Tolkien at the end of the novel The Hobbit. Uh, at which point uh, the dragon Smog is dead. Uh, sorry, uh, spoiler alert uh, for those of you who haven't seen the third movie and never read the book. Uh, I apologize for that, uh, but I'm betting most of you uh, already knew that. And uh, now everyone is kind of coming to see what's going to happen to all the money. You know, what's going to happen to all the treasure? Is the king under the mountain going to kind of return and assert, you know, his position? Um, what about the, you know, the dark forces uh, that are just now beginning to stir again from Mordor and 
the reach of uh, Sauron, uh, you know, coming in once again into the land, and all of these things come to this huge climax in the story uh, that is quite dramatic uh, in the novel, and I'm assuming it's going to be quite dramatic in the movie. And so this is the subject of this game. So the Battle of Five Armies is really kind of a, a beautiful production, uh, very much similar to those who might be familiar with uh, the War of the Ring game. This is, of course, uh, on a slightly smaller scale, certainly. Um, the entire board is basically sort of uh, the foot of the Lonely Mountain, where the Battle of the Five Armies takes place. And uh, players are either going to be playing, uh, you know, once again, the free people, or they're going to be uh, uh, playing as uh, the orcs and the goblins. Um, and so what you have is you have two asymmetrical sides. Uh, you have a sort of union of men and dwarves and elves on one side. On the other side, you have the uh, wargs and warg riders, you have the uh, uh, goblins, and you have the orcs. Um, and, of course, you have all of the, the, the major characters from the story. So you have Bilbo in there, you got uh, Bard in there, you got Gandalf and Thorin. And, um, you know, on the other side, you have uh, the great orc warlord. Bolg, who is going to be trying to stomp his way across the board and, and destroy all before his path. So uh, you have all of this drama set in, in this board game. Just like in the War of the Ring, you have uh, cards. So this game, you have a set of cards for uh, the uh, Dark Forces, and you have a set of cards for the Free People. And each of those card decks are going to be unique uh, to them. And uh, at the start of every turn, you're going to be able to draw one of those cards. And then there's also sort of a, a shared deck um, that's going to be used during the course of the game as well between the two players. And so... Uh, you have the same sort of card play that you had in War of the Ring. But in this game, uh, the individual decks that you have are going to be much more kind of powerful effects just for you. Nasty surprises, nasty tricks, uh, new events, and things that are going to really aid you and your side uh, of the battle. And then the common deck is, is going to have something that is going to be a little bit of something for everybody there. Um, you know, sometimes helping you and sometimes not. So um, all of that kind of card play from War of the Ring is, is basically there. So those of you who are familiar with that are going to really like that. And then you also still have the die mechanic, the dice mechanic from War of the Ring as well. So you have the same kind of custom dice, and the dice are going to have the different icons on them. So you might have a muster action, which is going to allow you to uh, you know, get new units onto the board. Um, you might have an army action, which will allow you to move and attack and things of that nature. You have... Um, you know, the Will of the West icon is still there for the free people that will allow you to do something, you know, as if it was almost like a wild die. Um, so all of those dice faces are still there. So those familiar with the War of the Ring uh, are going to be familiar with those. What the dice do is they determine what kind of actions you're going to take, whether you're going to take like a character action or whether you're going to take a muster action or an army action, etc. So all of these different dice, uh, dice are rolled by each side at the start of every round, and those dice are your pool. They're going to determine the actions you're going to be allowed to take. And so um, the Dark uh, Forces player uh, under Bulk, they're going to have more dice than the Free People, at least initially. And so the Free People have a really interesting kind of a thing where they can kind of pass. Uh, if the other player has more dice than you, 
uh, and that are ready to be used to turn into actions, you can pass and kind of force them to tip their hand a little bit. You can kind of wait and see what they're going to do before you decide to do you know your uh, dice action. So that's kind of an interesting little thing. Later on in the game, the free people have the ability to gain more dice and kind of level things out a little bit. So what you have is this kind of very tactical game where the free people are trying to kind of hold on versus this invading horde of uh, goblins and orcs and warg riders. And then eventually uh, also bats as well who are coming on to the board um, every turn uh, for uh, the the dark side player. Um, and then on the other side, the free people side, you have uh, all of your kind of normal forces. And then eventually you can kind of see on this wonderful little track, this is at the bottom of the board, there will come a time when the eagles will come into play. Because in the story, the eagles did kind of arrive dramatically and had a huge effect upon uh, the battle. Um, Bilbo will come onto the track, um, uh, will come into the game. Uh, and eventually Bjorn will come in. And Bjorn's kind of the one that everybody is waiting for. If you're the free people, you can't wait for Bjorn. If you are the, the forces of Mordor, the dark forces, you are desperately trying to forestall that as long as possible. Because when Bjorn comes onto the board, he's going to kind of really kind of clean house. He's incredibly powerful. So what uh, the... Um, forces of, of uh, Mordor, the dark forces are trying to do, is is rush and kind of sweep in um, into the valley and get to the front gate of the Lonely Mountain, uh, of the Lonely Mountain, take it over. If you can take over enough locations on the board, you're going to win, whether you take over the front gate or not. But the front gate is worth a huge amount of points, victory points for um, uh, that side. So if you can manage to kind of sweep in into the ruins of Dale and kind of take that and then move forward you're probably going to have a pretty good chance of winning because Balg himself is really, really powerful. Um, he has the ability to kind of, I guess, kind of like lieutenants or bodyguards that can kind of like shrug off um, a, a full attack. You might have done a huge amount of damage, but he can just kind of negate it all um, with his bodyguards. Um, there, there's just this wonderful kind of tension there. Meanwhile, the goblins are kind of massing in the mountains, okay? And so for the, the player playing the shadow, you know, the forces of, of Mordor, um, that side, the goblins are kind of building, building, building up in the mountains. and But they're blocked. They can't come onto the board until they reach kind of a critical mass point. Once they reach that critical mass point, they're going to come spilling out of the mountains, uh, almost like a wave. They're going to be coming down in two locations on the board, both of which are going to be uh, highly threatening to the free people player. So... Uh, you know, you're kind of watching that as the free people trying to gauge, you know, all right, when is that likely to trigger? When are they going to break through the mountain passes and come down on us? In the meantime, I got to deal with all these clowns over here who are constantly coming in, pouring in from the plains and coming in to attack. So as the free people player, you're really feeling quite desperate, uh, but you are in the defensive position, which, um, you know, I, I kind of liked in this game. Uh, it felt a little less desperate to me, certainly, than it did in the War of the Ring. And other reviewers have kind of commented, and I think they're absolutely right, that, you know, this game sort of turns things on its head. In War of the Ring, it's a race against time for the free people. I mean, they have to get into Mordor and slam dunk the ring uh, or less likely achieve a military victory uh, before they're overwhelmed, right? 
in this game, it's actually the 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 forces of Mordor that the shadow player um, is really under the pressure. They're the ones that are kind of under the time pressure because Bjorn's kind of lurking there. And if Bjorn ever enters the map, it's probably going to go badly for uh, the the dark forces. So this is one of those things that is really kind of interesting because it flips things on its head from the kind of mother game, if you want to call it, the uh, War of the Ring. So. All of this is to say that you have these really wonderful two asymmetrical sides. You have this great deck of cards, highly thematic, really um, portrays the theme quite well. But this game is very different. It's definitely not the sort of high strategy that War of the Ring is. Because at its heart, it's really a tactical battle game. And because of that, it's different enough and it's differentiated enough from War of the Ring that I feel I definitely can have both of them in my collection. If I'm looking for that grand storytelling arc of uh, you know, an epic game, I'm definitely going for War of the Ring. But if I'm looking for a game that's going to really kind of um, get me back in that world, but in a shorter playing time and kind of give me more of a, a battle sort of a feel, then I'm definitely going to be reaching for this one. And I think that that was definitely an intention because the designers put a lot of thought into the combat system. And the combat system here is much more intricate and fleshed out than it is in War of the Rings. So, for example, every uh, race has a few different types of units. And each of those units has a unit card. And each of those unit cards outlines a special ability that each of those types of units have, that only they have, right? And it also kind of lets you know that there's a certain condition. They have to score a hit in order to activate that special ability. So instead of just having a bunch of dudes on the map, what you now have is you have these armies, and you can compose them of these different types of units, which are going to give you lots of different opportunities for special abilities and special attacks, extra hits, extra damage damage, things of that nature. But um, since you have a limit, a stacking limit of how many you can have, which I, if I'm remembering correctly is five armies, you, you can't have too many in there. And sometimes it actually might be more beneficial for you to have a huge army of all the same types of units because then uh, what's going to happen is you're going to increase the likelihood you're going to do that special damage, that special attack, or activate that special ability. And that's because when you attack, you're going to pick up dice equal to the number of units, and you're going to roll those dice. And you're going to get hits on fives and sixes. And so that's kind of like what you're looking for. And that's going to damage the uh, opposing army, regardless of who it is, right? But if you have special units in play, one of the interesting parts of the game is you have a card play segment of every combat round. So remember how I said each of these units has their own little card? Well, you have a hand of cards, and those cards can be those unit cards, and the cards can also be others that you would collect during the course of the game, different fate cards and story cards and things of that nature that you could use during the course of a battle. So what you're going to do is at the start of every round, you're each going to select a card and you're going to reveal it. And that card could be something that's going to give you some sort of a bonus to hit or some sort of special effect, or it could be one of these troop cards. And these troop cards are going to then allow you to take black dice instead of white dice equal to the number of that type of unit that you have in your army. So then when you roll, if you get a hit with a black die, that indicates that not only did you get a hit, but you activated the special ability of that unit. And so if you only have one of that type of unit in your army and you go and you roll and you roll a bunch of hits, but none with the black die, then you're not actually going to get to activate that special ability. 
But if you have an army that is full of the same types of units, then you're obviously going to be rolling more of those black dice, right? So that's going to increase the odds that you're actually going to be scoring one of these special um, hits or you're going to be activating one of these special unit abilities. So that's a really neat choice. Okay, then the other way in which the combat system is fleshed out is through the use of wound markers, right? So every time you do a hit, you put a little marker on the unit. Uh, I'm sorry, on the army. And those wounds really kind of don't do anything. They don't do anything until the wound markers begin to exceed uh, the number of units in the army. At that point, as soon as you have more wounds than you have pieces, then you have to start removing pieces. And for every piece you remove, you're going to remove two of those wound markers. So your, your army is gradually going to weaken. But initially in that fight, when both sides are fresh, there's going to be a lot of back and forth, everybody kind of smacking each other around, and then suddenly attrition is going to kind of set in. And you're going to start to see those armies that have been weakened, they're going to rapidly be lost during the conflict, right? In addition to that, uh, however, though, there are also some cards and special abilities and actions you can take to try to kind of refresh them and revive them and get rid of your wound markers later on if you survive the battle. So that's really cool. So you have a much more fleshed out combat system, as I'm sure you can tell, um, that it really adds a lot of decisions, a lot of tension, a lot of options, and really makes the combat much more a focus of the game here. Normally, I'm much more about the story, but in this particular instance, the combat here is actually very kind of rich to me um, because all of the special abilities of the units kind of make sense. They all kind of work and they work thematically and they work in game terms and the mechanics are not overwhelming, which is really nice. About my only complaint about the combat system is that the wound markers are all the same. So when you have a bunch of um, different armies on the map, you know you have to be very careful that you keep the wound markers kind of pointing, their triangles pointing at the correct army, because sometimes it can be a little confusing, like, all right, whose markers are those? And that's a pretty big deal. So I kind of wish that the wound markers at least had come in two different colors so that you would be able to differentiate, okay, well, the red ones are for the, the dark forces, the shadow player, and the blue ones are for the free people. And, and, and that would kind of make more sense to me. But for some reason, they didn't do that. Um, it's a minor quibble, but it is uh, an important part of the game. So you have to be sure that you don't make a mistake with that. Um, so the rest of the game is going to be playing these rounds. We're going to be using your dice. Other things that you can do other than fight is you can muster new units. Uh, and that's a really neat little system too because at the start of the game, you're going to seed the board with these little counters, the muster counters. And then also during the course of the game, you're going to have the ability to add even more of those. But the cool thing about them is that while they're unique to each of the different races in the game, you don't know exactly what you're going to see when you uh, when you flip it over. You put them face down. And so I know that this is a human token or this is a dwarf token or this is an elf token, but I don't really know its strength. I don't know what kind of unit I'm going to get until I actually take the muster action. When I take that action and I get to reveal and I flip those over, then I kind of see, okay, who's come to the party now, right? And this kind of, to me, matches the story of, you know, everybody's sort of coming from far away and converging on this one location for this great battle. And, you know, you weren't exactly sure who was coming and what kind of forces would be represented. So that's really neat. Uh, and it adds a lot of tension. There's a lot of mystery to the game there. And uh, it can be very devastating because the, the dark uh, side player, the shadow player, um, has the 
the ability to sometimes, you know, play cards that will remove those muster tokens. And so, you know, you, you see or you think you have reinforcements coming and they sort of evaporate and you're like, oh man, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to hold this? So that's really interesting. The other part of the game that I think bears um, some some real praise is the way in which leadership works in this game. So there are leaders in this game, and they're represented by figures. And these are like the important people from the story. You know, uh, these would be people like Bolg, and these would be people like uh, Gandalf and Bilbo and Thorin, etc. Right? And those characters all have leadership. Okay, and they're going to be able to do some special things for you if you activate them. They're going to give you bonuses in the form of re-rolls and things of that nature. But every round, the free people player has to decide how many leadership markers or tokens am I going to put out? How many leaders am I going to activate? And when you put out that many, the shadow player gets to do a couple of nifty things. They're going to be able to put out a number of bats um, that are helpful to them in combat that are going to kind of patrol whole zones of the board, not just a, a, a single spot. And... They're also going to get to draw tokens from a bag, and, and these tokens are the ones that determine how fast that fate, that time track, moves in the game. So this is really interesting because as the free people player, you want to activate all your generals every single round because they're powerful and they're going to help you. I mean, Gandalf, for goodness sakes, he can like, you know, launch like this huge lightning bolt to go and like fry, you know, the, the opposing troops. Very powerful, especially apparently if he's concentrating on it. So that's really awesome. You want to activate him every round um, to either concentrate, to beef up his attack or to actually attack. And then, you know, all of these leaders have these great abilities. But the problem is, is that if you activate them, and I think the free people can activate up to three per round, then that means the shadow player is going to be able to draw three tokens. Each of the tokens is going to have a number on it or a value on it, and that tells you how far up the marker is going to be pushed on that sort of time track. So the more leaders you deploy as the free people, the more choices the shadow player is going to have as they draw. So if they draw a token and it's like a three, and they're like, oh my god, you know, it's a two, it's a three, it's going to, oh, geez, you know, Bjorn's right around the corner. They can say, well, you know what? You put out three leadership tokens, so I'm going to put that one aside, and I'm going to draw another one. And they draw another one, and it's a one, and they're like, yeah, I'll go with that instead. So I find that that's a really interesting mechanism in this game. It makes it a really crucial decision on just how much how much do you value those leaders and the leadership tokens? And uh, those leadership tokens are so important in the game because they give you those re-rolls, and that's really, really vital. Also, a lot of the cards that you have um, are tied to leadership. So it has to be an army that has leadership, um, either a leadership token or an actual leader figure um, that you've activated with leadership, right? So this really makes for a lot of tense decisions in the game because as you know, you want to get them all activated, but you know that that's actually going to be slowing time down. And since it's a race against time for the shadow player, as those forces of darkness try to sweep across the valley and up into the lonely mountain, you know, you, you may want to take some turns where you're not activating all your leaders and you're forcing the shadow player to only draw one or maybe two tokens out of that bag and hoping that that's going to really push that track down. It's going to get you other characters onto the board and eventually if Bjorn can come out, boy, that's just awesome for you. So I think that's just a brilliant part of the design. So how does the game play? 
Um, I find that it plays very well. It's very engaging. You're always interested in everything that's going on on that board. Um, do I think that it is as short of a playtime as advertised? No. Uh, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, you can play this game in an hour, hour and a half. Well, I've only played it twice. So this is kind of an initial impressions review, but I can't ever see this game taking less than two hours. If you're thinking at all, if you're, if you're trying to come up with any kind of plan or strategy, if you're really considering your options, I really don't see it possible to play this game in under two hours. Um, my first play was four hours, uh, at which point I was looking at my friend Lloyd. I'm like, uh, I could have played Lord, War of the Ring almost in that amount of time. And that wasn't meant as a slam against Battle of Five Armies. It was just, we, you know, we really enjoyed it, but we were kind of surprised because everyone's been saying, oh, you can play this in an hour and a half, in 90 minutes. I'm like, eh. So then the next time we played it, you know, we got it to like two hours. It's like, okay, that was much more reasonable, but really don't see that ever creeping below two. So that's just my opinion. Um, I don't know that I would buy into the hype that it's that much short, you know, that's that shorter of a game. Uh, I think it's probably going to fall between two and two and a half most of the time. If you can get it played in an hour and a half, hour 45, God bless you. But um, maybe I'm just too slow or too old, but I can't get it played that fast. So, um, that's like one possible downside. I kind of feel that that wasn't entirely accurate the way that that was reported. Um, the other uh, thing that, you know, I really wish is I wish the box insert was a little bit better. Um, they're kind of these huge, deep kind of dishes for all of the bits and pieces, but you really have to have these things sorted out. I mean, there's so many little cardboard tokens and whatnot uh, that represent different things, whether it's wounds or leadership or control or all or all the mustering kind of tokens for all of the different races. And so if you really want to have that organized, those, those deep trays really don't do real well. Um, I, I would have preferred a, a different kind of a solution, and I'm actually pretty tempted to just ditch the insert altogether and just kind of put everything in there with bags or, or deli cups or something of that nature. So wasn't a real big you know, fan of that either. But the game itself, the gameplay itself, the presentation of the game, the art in the game, the components of the game, all of those things I thought were top-notch. Um, it was a fantastic gaming experience both times I've played it. I really enjoyed it and recommend it highly. So if you like thematic games, if you like games that are tied to a source material, uh, like Tolkien's World and, and all of the great stories that came out of that, this is a game that I think definitely deserves a spot in your collection, even if you already have War of the Ring. I think they're different enough that they, they certainly merit both of them merit a spot in your collection. So if this sounds at all like your kind of game, I would highly recommend it. Um, Gamesurplus.com has some in stock, so I would definitely check it out. That's The Battle of Five Armies. A fantastic game by Robert DiMeglio, Marco Magai, and Francisco Nepatello. Published by Ares Games. So if you're looking for that kind of wonderful thematic experience, definitely check it out. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. Of course, I want to thank my special guest, Joel Eddy, for agreeing to come on the show tonight and talk to me about this topic of difficult themes. Of course, I also want to thank my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. Go to Gamesurplus.com, check out and uh, see if you can grab yourself a copy of Battle of Five Armies or any of the other great titles that they have in stock. 
If you're looking to grab a, a copy of one of the new Essen titles, for example, coming out this year, I would definitely send Velma an email over at uh, games at gamesurplus.com and see if she can track you down a copy before it's even released here in the United States. So whether you're looking for the latest, greatest game or a hard-to-find import, gamesurplus.com is your first and best choice, as always, for game purchases. And if you do order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I also, of course, want to mention my local game store as well, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They are a fantastic and growing resource for game lovers here all over the northeastern Pennsylvania, northern New Jersey, and southern New York region. They have a uh, collection now that is uh, coming close to 800 titles available for purchase right now on Main Street in Stroudsburg, conveniently located off of Route Interstate 80. Uh, the Gamer's Edge has plenty of open gaming table space, a knowledgeable and friendly staff, fantastic prices. Uh, you really can't go wrong. So go check out The Gamer's Edge if you're here in our region and see what they have to offer. So for Joel Eddy and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.